All right, um, super glad to be with you this morning, and I want to uh, encourage you to see Wendell after the worship gathering if you have questions or throughout the week. If something pops up and you have a question, you can certainly email us, call us, you know, whatever. We're, uh, we're very easy to get a hold of here. So today we are uh, studying the, the fourth part. This is going to be the last part of this section of Ephesians that's been dealing with the helmet of salvation. And this has been part of a larger series called uh, Standing Firm, which has been sort of an in-depth look at the armor of God, which is historically and sort of colloquially what, what we refer to this text in the book of Ephesians as. And over these past weeks, we, you know, we've spent as much time as necessary with each component of the armor because they're all very important. But over these past weeks, we've really zeroed into the helmet of salvation, or zeroed in on it. And we have talked about the significance of this belief in the Christian faith. It is a foundational doctrine, what it means to, uh, whatever terminology you use, salvation, redemption, uh, some people sort of refer to this as having eternal life. All of these words work, but here Paul uses the word salvation, and he likens it to a battle helmet. And this is a belief so central to the mission of Jesus. I've said this each and every week for a good reason. The whole Gospel of John, what we learn is that the ministry of Jesus, everything was pointing to what he was going to do on the cross for, for us to be able to look to the cross, find life in God through Jesus. So central to his life that after he left us, he made it central to our lives. It's, it's the primary responsibility he gives us as he leaves in the Great Commission, which we read about in the Gospel of Matthew. So the, the summary of his entire ministry is that we will be the types of people who have so experienced Jesus in deep and meaningful ways that we, in very respectful ways, want to be able to share the light and life of Christ to the world that we live in. And so in, I'm going to do just a short recap here in case you have not been with us or didn't hear the sermons online. We've talked at length about how the helmet of salvation deals with the past penalty and problem of sin. We've talked about how what Jesus has done on the cross addresses God's demand for justice and righteousness. A God who is just and right cannot let things that are not just and unrighteous go without being, being addressed. And so in God's economy, he does something pretty amazing. He deals with the problem of sin through the death of Jesus. And that we refer to as a, as a past tense event. Not past tense meaning that we, we look to it and think it's just historical and it has no modern application in our life. But past tense simply meaning that when we look to the cross and Jesus redeems us, he addresses the problem and the penalty of our sin. But the cross also has a modern day, a present application in everything we say and do. It addresses the present perils that sin often throws our way. The temptations and the trials of life. In this text, we refer to this as the fiery darts of the devil, because that's what Paul spoke about. This was at the beginning of this series. And so over these past weeks, we have identified what we're talking about as these great Christian truths. They're called salvation and sanctification. How we come to Jesus and then how we grow in Jesus, how he spends his days shaping us and reshaping us into the image of Christ. And these two ideas, these two truths, require us to find a very real theological and practical balance in our lives. They're sort of like two, two truths that sit on a seesaw. And if they are imbalanced, they can create some serious problems for us. If we misunderstand how it is we know Christ, that can create a problem. And if we misunderstand the fact that once we know Jesus, he is, he is committed to us for the rest of our days in this life and in the next to help us to know, grow, and appreciate in his, his love and his grace. And so at the beginning of this, we talked about, and I, I like this language. It's a good thing to sort of memorize for how we're talking about this. Salvation in Jesus has to be seen as both the means and the motive for how we find and grow in Christ's grace. And over the years, there have been some great imbalances with these ideas. 
There was a large church movement in America that taught nothing but the salvation of Jesus. And then what happened was is people found Christ and had a lot of questions about what it meant to actually live for him, what it meant to, to spend the rest of your days on this earth in Jesus. And on the other side of the fence, if you've ever been a, in a sanctification-heavy culture, a culture where it's all about you being something better or different, change, which we're going to talk about today a little bit, but if you were sort of told that you needed to do more or be more in a church culture where you were disconnected from the grace and the truth of Jesus, well, that's just a yoke around the neck of the believer that creates a weight in a different way. Both of them create a, an unhealthy dependence almost at times on ourselves. And it sort of makes sense that if we begin to remove the source of authority from our faith, Jesus, from our faith, then the faith begins to get a little wobbly. And so at the beginning of this teaching about the helmet of salvation, we focused a good deal on the means of salvation. As we come to the end of this teaching in this section, we're focusing on motivation. And we spoke about motivation last week, and we're going to do it again this week from a different angle. And this is important to understand. Motivation in life and anything we do is critical. It's, it's the, the reason we do something or the reason we are something. And our motivation in life re- really matters especially in the faith, because if we imbalance these, these truths, salvation, in, salvation and, in, and sanctification, then our life in faith is going to be in balance too. It makes sense that if one side of the saw is heavy, then one side of it will be out of sorts in our lives. And what happens here is we either miss out on opportunities to grow in Jesus when he provides them to us, because we've sort of forgotten the fact that Jesus is our shepherd and wants to guide us through every day and moment of our lives, or we attempt, to, we attempt to live the Christian life without the power and the presence of Jesus, which is really ridiculous if you think about it. He is the epicenter of the Christian faith. And so to misunderstand who he is or to, to pursue God without Christ creates a, a vacuum in what faith is supposed to be and how we can actually live it in, in ways that cause us to flourish on earth. The first imbalance impedes our maturation in Christ. The second leads us to a form of performance-based religion. And in many ways, that's what we've been talking about last week and certainly today. Performance-based religion simply means you're in an environment where, you know, you might even believe that it is the grace of Jesus that, that rectifies you to God, but you then live with this deep insecurity in your heart that you have to earn and re-earn Christ's love to keep his love. And I want to make a distinction here. It is impossible to lose the love of God when you are in Jesus. But you can actually be out of the favor of God. It's possible for us to be doing things or living in ways where, where the hand of God in our lives is displeased with what is going on. But that is different than saying God no longer loves us. In fact, the, the, think about this from the angle of parenting. All of you, some of you are parents, and every one of us have been parented. But when our parents speak to us in ways, or when they maybe correct us, or they speak into our lives and want to change things, when the motive is correct, that's done out of love. And so even what, what looks like displeasure from a, from a parent, a mother or father that deeply loves us, the motive behind that, in a healthy parenting paradigm anyways, is a desire to care for and see the child flourish. And so I want to make sure that there's a distinction here that, that you cannot lose the love of God, but there are certainly times when, when we, can, we can see the favor of God removed from our lives because we are beginning to do things or live in ways that, that dishonor him or really remove us from the grace that he has offered us on the cross. And last week I said if we were going to take this idea and put it in the language of the armor of God, what we're talking about now, this would be like, like wearing a battle helmet sideways or, or backwards. Whether you're thinking about the ancient world or the modern world, Every military in history has had some form of helmet. 
And if you were to turn it sideways on your head, the helmet would become, it wouldn't just be ineffective, it would actually make it very difficult to do what you need to do to accomplish your job, whatever that scenario or mission is. And I think when it comes to salvation and sanctification, it's very easy for us to blame the helmet. It's very easy for us to to get these things out of balance and then to to not uh, feel, whether it is with our head, our hearts, or our hands, we might feel like God does not love us or care for us in the ways that he offers himself to us. And that is not because there's anything wrong with the salvation of Jesus or the promise he's made to us to reshape us into his image. It has to do with the way we understand these things, the way we're living them out and living in light of them. And that is what I want to continue to talk about today how salvation, how this helmet, sort of when it's fitted properly on our head, shapes our lives and protects our minds. And this leads me to the main truth that I want to share with you today. To to truly understand Jesus' grace on the cross, truly understanding His grace on the cross, it is the motivation for all life change in the Christian life. And I chose the word life change because that's really the best and most common way to describe what we have been talking about. We're talking about how Jesus takes us from one place in life and moves us to another place in life, in all kinds of areas of our life. And what that means is life changes. We begin to look different in certain areas of our life. The motivation for that has to be understanding who Jesus is and what he did for us. Last week we sang Amazing Grace. I asked our worship team to sing that song because it's a very powerful song and it's sort of profound in what it communicates. And I want to sort of run with that in in a different way today. We didn't sing it today, but I want to piggyback on the idea of that song today. The Amazing Grace of the Cross, that's what the premise of that song is about, is, is meant to be, I like to say, a spiritual GPS guiding you on your journey in Jesus. Now, if you are a person who relies on GPS, I am a person who utterly relies on GPS. Uh, You know how how useful it is. GPS is without doubt one of the most beneficial technologies that we have today. You know, a couple of decades ago, this was like top secret military stuff. And now, you know, if you have a phone in your pocket, you have the capability to have this this feature. It's pretty amazing. Many of us have come to trust and rely on it in just about any time we get into a car. And I know that I even use it when I know where I'm going because a couple of years ago, GPS even got more sophisticated. It didn't just tell you where to go and you know, where to turn. It started doing other things that helped to make a driving journey more pleasant, useful, and efficient. So it used to just be that GPS t- told you to turn left or right. Now GPS reports accidents. It tells you when there's debris in the road. It'll highlight when there's traffic jams. And it is constantly recalculating the path that we're taking. So if you've used GPS, and I'm assuming every one of you have, if you've not, you need to know what a smartphone is, and we'll tell you about that after worship. But the idea is like, you, you know, you put it up on your dashboard, and it'll even say recommended route change, because it's figured out that it's going to be seven minutes quicker for you to take this little country road, wherever you're at, than the interstate because of traffic. It's truly, truly fascinating. And I think it's something that most of us take for granted, because we've had it in our cars for so long, right? So you just get used to it. But if you really think about it, it's become an essential traveling mate on our our road journeys. In cars or whatever we're driving, it truly is the subtle voice of direction always guiding our next move on the road. And you rely on it in extra ways if you're in a place where you don't know where you're at. You can sort of be like tuned into it, waiting for it to say what you have to do next, just utterly trusting that it's going to tell you to turn right and not left into like a lake or something, right? We, We sort of have this default trust in it constantly directs our course, and eventually GPS gets us to the place that we want to go, our final destination, whatever that is. 
And I want to use that modern technology to, to sort of parallel it with an ancient theology. Guidance like that really is the role the helmet of salvation is supposed to play in our lives when it comes to following Jesus. Think about the reliance and the trust you have on a device that directs your steps to get you where you need to go. There is a very similar truth when it comes to how we understand Jesus and what he did on the cross. And the more deeply you understand the amazing theology of the cross, the less likely you are to adopt. There are many, many problematic motivations, faulty motivations that have been offered to us in the Christian faith. I don't want to teach on this subject for 10 weeks. And so I've addressed one last week, which was behavior management. And today we're going to talk about fear. We're going to just look at two big ones, maybe even the biggest ones. There are lots of motivations, but these two have seemed to be the ones that, for whatever reasons, Christians migrate to more frequently when they move away from a healthy or centered understanding of the cross. Now, fear-based motivation or behavior management, they're very contrarian ideas to what we're told to think about when it comes to the cross. We're told to meditate on this beautiful truth that we've experienced where we recognize that Jesus is love. It's powerfully demonstrated for us on the cross that he takes the shame and the judgment of sin. He bears it on our shoulders. It, when, you, when you recognize sort of the love and the care and the affection and the lengths Jesus went to to bear that burden for us, it really should create a different type of motivation for the Christian life, a much healthier uh, motivation. It creates, I'd like to say, a fertile soil in your heart that God can really grow himself in. And that is why we're using these terms salvation and sanctification. God has begun a work in your life. That's what the Bible teaches us. And he is faithful to complete the work that he has started in our lives under heaven. And I just have this image in my head of like a really talented farmer working with soil to create uh, the, the ability for it to fertilely grow amazing things that sustain life. The same is true when it, we come to this, this understanding of how God works in our lives physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And so understanding God's love on the cross like this, it tends to foster different motivations. It tends to foster, or at least it should, a deep sense of trust and gratitude towards God. There's a deep sense of trust when the voice on your car says, turn left in 250 feet. This, and, and there is probably an unassumed gratitude Like you would probably feel very unthankful if your GPS took you down a wrong street and got you lost. But we just show up to places and have uh, maybe what is even sort of like a secret or a hidden thankfulness. where It's just an assumed thankfulness. It did what it did and because of that our life is good in that moment. We got to the place we were wanting to go. The same is very true when it comes to the cross. But I want to encourage you all to have a more proactive understanding of thanksgiving for what this means. Because to understand the cross this way really should genuinely cause you and I to want to bring our lives in line with God's ultimate desire for our lives. And we've said frequently over these past weeks, that is to remake us into the image of Jesus. That is his destination for our lives. And so becoming like Christ is truly what we're aiming for in the Christian life. It is, it is the sort of chief end of our existence. We are looking at Jesus, loving Jesus, and pursuing Jesus. And in the process, he is helping us to become more like him, his character, his attributes, his values. This is what it means to follow Christ. It's what it means to be a disciple. A little Jesus, essentially, is what that word means. We desire to orient our lives around him. And we cannot do that by ourselves. And that is because we live in a world where, whether, where it's a teaching like this that I'm giving you, I'm making a strong argument for the fact that it should be the voice of Jesus that directs the step of the Christian. We, we live in a world where there are voices everywhere. 
There are no shortage of them. No matter where you go or what you turn on, whether you're listening to a podcast or watching a television show, broadcast news, the opinions of peers, we are inundated more than ever in history with voices because of what technology has created. We have the ability now to say something here and it can be heard across the world through social media platforms in, in moments. And I'm not even saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that we need to be more mindful than ever that we are offered now and have access to more motivations than ever in history because it's just everywhere we go. This is a voice. One of them you hear mostly every week. It's one voice in a sea of many. Some of the voices are okay. Some of them are really good, and some of them are just outright dangerous. And in light of that, I want to spend some time examining a very common motivational factor that pe people often rely on to grow and change in their faith. This is certainly a word not limited just to faith, but it has been a touted motivational to a tool, a touted tool to build a healthy relationship. And I want to tell you that if you rely on this, you will not have a healthy relationship in any area of life. So what's the word I want to talk about? Well, it's fear. It's this idea that driving fear into somebody's life is a way to bring about an end result. Now, in, in particular, we're going to relegate this to Christianity here for a few moments. Relying on fear to motivate the Christian life, it is detrimental and it stands in stark contrast to the theology of the cross. What the cross communicates to us is something very contrarian to the idea of fear. And whether you are aware of it or not, uh, some of you, I've talked to some of you, some of you have grown up in environments like this. Some of you might have heard about an environment like this. Maybe you saw something on, on TV. Maybe you listened to somebody that grew up in an environment like this. Fear-based Christianity is still alive and well today. I would say it's probably not as prevalent as it was 50 years ago. And despite the fact that, uh, that our culture, inside the walls of this church and outside of it, we don't practice this here, and I would say in our modern world, people are less receptive to this. And that's because there's been just a general breakdown in the respect of authority. So fear is often rooted in an, uh, an unhealthy authority. And it would make sense that if we're living in a culture where institutions and authority are more frequently questioned, the idea is that the fear often associated with unhealthy institutions and organizations, well, that's going to wane too. And so while fear is not the big kid on the block anymore, and people are less receptive to it, what I want to say, even 20 years ago, less receptive to it, it's still a prevalent idea in our world. And it's a very prevalent idea if you have been shaped by it and you haven't had time to let Jesus reshape your heart. Now, I want to, I want to say this again. We don't practice this here. We, there are actually a series of sermons that I taught years ago on fear and what that word means in the Bible. And fear, when it comes to understanding God, or we've referenced Philippians a few times here, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Fear is never referring to some abusive father in heaven who takes delight in torturing us and making our lives terrible. That is not the idea of fear. Fear is like almost a, a general respect, like the fear of fire. Think of it this way. You look at fire and you respect it and you know, like, I should have put my hand in it because if I do, I will take my hand out of it with no, with no hand. There's a, a sense of awe and respect about it, not an abusive sense. That's an unhealthy understanding of fear. So I just want to lay this out. I'm talking about this morning the, the, the unhealthy side, though. What happens if we've grown up or you know somebody that has grown up and their only experience with Christianity might have been hearing about a vengeful God who rules with an iron fist and demands autocratic allegiance from, from his people. He's like a spiritual Stalin, essentially. And for this person or the people in your lives, 
that have maybe had experiences with type, this type of faith, it makes sense that if they had any love for God at all, it was motivated out of a fear of that God, not a, a genuine love for Jesus. And that's where the distinction point comes here. There's, there's an understanding of God that is not correct or proper. And if you've grown up in a faith paradigm like that, it's going to shape an imbalanced pursuit and understanding of Jesus. And so this was made evident to me. There's lots of examples of this in the modern world today, but made very evident to me in a documentary I watched some time ago. Um, it was actually a, a documentary that was chronicling the idea of hell, how cultures and religions have understood this place throughout sort of the established modern world that we have. And they were looking at it from different angles, and there was obviously a major component of this documentary that addressed the concept of hell from the Christian perspective. And they brought in a, a pastor to address questions about it. And the thing with these documentaries is some of them can actually be okay, but what I find is when you get into these somewhat controversial topics, seldom do they bring in like a, a rational, well-thought-out, informed, experienced Christian pastor to talk about some divisive subject. They don't do that. They almost always bring in some irrational dude who's like a firebomb that, that just is going to increase the ratings of this show. In other words, they like to bring the crazies in. And it always drives me nuts because that guy represents a lot of other people. And I think a lot of people hear this guy, especially what I'm about to say, and they think everybody is sort of crazy like this. And so in this interview, this guy was asked to talk about how much he relied on fear-based teaching to inform and motivate his congregation. This is the same thing I do every week. They were essentially saying, what is the role of fear in the way you preach? And apparently, this guy was a really big fan of it, like numero uno fan. If he was at the fear bowl, he'd have the big number one finger that said fear on it. He loved it. And he, he rightly noted to a certain degree that history, in, in history, if you look at history, Fear, he literally said this, fear has been a tool used to get people to make changes in their lives. When you look at unhealthy paradigms, especially the autocratic governments of the world, fear is almost always the tool used to, to bring about an outcome. Do this or we'll execute you. Do this or, or we'll isolate you. Do this or we won't care about you. That's the motivation of fear. And you can bring about change, I'm putting that word in quotes in some people's lives, but it's a very shifty change because whenever a person that is living under a system like that has the opportunity to leave that system, they're going to do it because it's an unhealthy one. They're only there, frankly, because they're afraid of what's going to happen if they, they deny or disobey whatever they're being told to do. And so he connected this idea about how fear was used throughout history to bring about change in people. And then he specifically said that on a regular basis, he used the fear of God's judgment and wrath all the time to get people to live right. That's what he said. Now, I, I have to sort of clarify something here before we go on. I want to make sure you know what I am and I'm not saying. Before we go on, I want to say that the scripture does teach that God uh, has the right and one day will righteously judge all the matters of humanity. Um, that is a very serious thing. So I'm, I'm not at all saying that this idea of God being a righteous judge who will one day look at all of the matters of the world and, and deal with them accordingly. I'm not saying the Bible does not say that because it actually does say that and has quite a bit to say about that. And I'm not even trying to say that, that this guy was entirely wrong in every area of what he was saying. There was some like shreds of truth in what he was saying. I'm merely trying to point out a great example of an imbalance because there was much less of, of the truth in what he thought, because it was sort of like the seesaw was just not even imbalanced. It was like straight up vertical in the dirt. 
the, the imbalanced understanding of how he saw these two things shaped how he was shaping people's lives and hearts as they tried to follow Christ. And here's what I mean by this. Jesus himself talks about God's judgment in the Bible. He says this. He was also super clear to make sure, though, that being judged like this is not God's ultimate desire for our lives. So while he unashamedly talks about God being a righteous God and a judge, he has no shame in that. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he is regularly making judgments. He's looking at things and saying, like, you've heard it said, but I need to tell you it's said a different way when you understand it from my, my father's angle. He is clearly looking into the world and directing new truth into the areas of the world where there is distortion. Okay? So that happens. But what I want to say here is that it is not God's ultimate desire that we hear each week that he wants to judge and destroy us. How do, how do we know that? Because I have spent four weeks and could spend four more with you talking about the helmet of salvation. God sends Jesus to the cross so that that is dealt with for us. We would not have this helmet, this, this protection from that and so many other things if God didn't create a different way. It is God's ultimate desire for our lives for us to rest in his truth and his grace, for us to look to Jesus to be the one who takes this for us on our behalf. So to simply see our faith as something that is driven by, by fear and judgment and wrath is really, really dangerous because you cannot have a, a proper understanding of God with, with that in your mind in an imbalanced way. And then I, I do think when you really recognize that, that Jesus has taken these things for us, it really begins to show you just how far God was willing to go on our behalf. In other words, he took the onus of our wrongs on him so that we could dwell in, in the favor of God in a different way. Furthermore, let's just forget I didn't say any of that stuff, okay? Furthermore, fear-based motivation works at all. Um, and it works to a certain degree, but I would not say a lasting or meaningful degree. If it works at all, it tends uh, to create a very sketchy kind of allegiance to God or an employer or a friend or a spouse. There's no genuine love and loyalty in that. What happens is, like, you want to know that when you're charging up a hill and you look behind you, your people are still with you. Whatever world you live in, you don't want to have a, have a fear motivation or drive people by fear and then turn around and recognize they've all left because they found their chance to escape from you. This is why a lot of people have ejected out of Christianity. They were presented a very disproportionate understanding of God. And they, it creates a sketchy allegiance that can't stand. It creates a pressured heart attitude that says, I'll give you some common examples of this. You know, I need to clean my life up, like what this guy said. How do, I need to get right with God, uh, because if you even believe in that sort of thing today, a lot of people don't. I need to get right with God, because I, I believe God's going to shun me if, if, uh, if I don't like perfectly meet up a, and, and with everything he wants me to do in life. I, I just sort of have recognized, like, you know, I make mistakes, a lot of them, and, and I make these mistakes, and God's automatic response to me is, he shuns me. He doesn't care for me, or he doesn't want to look to me. That's what a fear-based God would do. Rather than deeply believing, God is tirelessly working in your life to bring about more Jesus in you. That's why these ideas have to be sanctified. The fact that the scripture teaches us God is trying to remake us into the image of Jesus automatically assumes that there are distorted areas of our life that need to be Jesusified, if I could make that word up for a moment here. The assumption is we need Jesus to be more like Jesus. And the challenge here is when you grow up in a fear-based environment, you grow up thinking God is your greatest adversary. But the nature of what Jesus does shows us that God is your greatest advocate and ally in getting you right with him. What a different way to look at faith. 
right? God wants to smoke me every time I make a mistake. Or God is our greatest advocate and ally in actually getting us right with him. He's provided his son, the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to bring about the truth of Scripture in our lives. In every way and in every moment, he is working in our lives so that we can be more like Christ. Totally different way to look at your Father in heaven. Or it's when a person thinks they must be doing something for God because, try to visualize this with me for a moment, they believe that, you know, God sort of sits in heaven and he's got this big whiteboard where he writes with these permanent markers. 20 years ago it was a chalkboard. Now whiteboards are really hips, and I know God's hip. So he's on these whiteboards and he's writing with these markers that cannot actually be erased. Every single thing that we've done right and every single thing that we've done wrong. And then what happens is, is at the end of our life, according to the scripture, we'll stand before God and he's going to pull out that whiteboard and tally it all up. And if he's having a bad week, we're going to get smoted. That's what people think is going to happen. If he's off kilted that day or he's got a problem with us, he's just going to basically say, you know, the scale tipped heavy. You are not so great a person and I'm not feeling too well today. So that's it. Life's over. This is the root of what we call a works-based faith that says God only loves me because of what I do. And this is why I mentioned this briefly last week. A lot of scholars refer to grace as a scandal because the truth is like you, you truly can. This is not recommended for so many reasons, but you truly can live in incredibly far ways from God on this earth. You can do things that dishonor him all day long and have a genuine understanding of what it means to know Jesus at some point in your life. And God will love you and forgive you but you will miss out on the journey of what it means to know Jesus for your life on this earth. And the effects of that afterwards are serious too. And so my point here is, is just because it can be that way should not mean that we want to be that way. We should want to be the types of people who, who recognize like we can never have a list long enough for God to, to show us favor, for us to earn his favor. That's the beauty of the cross. But I will also say with the same amount of emphasis, we should be the types of people that desire both the love and the favor of God in our lives. We should never take advantage of that. We should recognize God is a God of justice and mercy. And each one of those things needs to be balanced accordingly. When they're out of sorts, one becomes a cold, hard judge, the justice God. When it's all mercy, but we, rec we, we fail to recognize that, that God actually has a very strong, just attribute, then what happens is, is we might treat people in ways or ourselves in ways that actually violate not only the character of God, but ourselves and other people. And so while this type of unhealthy fear or something can be a brief, I'm not saying you can't start with fear. It's not recommended. But, uh, but the point is some people start here. It, it can't stay that way. If fear is how you understand salvation and sanctification, it cannot be the sustaining drive for a genuine relationship with Jesus. It cannot be. Because whatever outcome you're trying to achieve from it is never going to stick unless, unless at some point you connect it to that wonderful love Jesus has shown you on the cross. And there are lots of verses in Scripture that address this. I want to share one with you. Paul pointedly addresses fear-based Christianity when speaking about what Jesus did for us on the cross in Romans 8. 15, it'll be behind me. He says, for you did not receive a spirit. Notice this is a lowercase s. So he's not talking about like his spirit. He's talking about some other voice, some other thing. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. The idea behind this is that in Jesus, we are saved from this type of fear. And the spirit he's talking about seeks to re-enslave us. So he says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear but you receive the capitalist spirit of sonship. And because of it, we now cry, Abba, Father. 
what he's saying is, is you've not been relegated to shackles and fear. To be in Jesus means you've been made a full-blown son or daughter of the king. You are now you are now worthy because of what Jesus has done for you to inherit the kingdom of God. And because of this, he says, we should now cry Abba or, or Father. Now here Paul teaches us if, if fear is driving your life in Jesus, it's because we're seeing God in wrong ways. I'm not talking about that healthy, respectful, tight, uh, fire type of fear. I'm talking about the abusive kind here. You're wrongly seeing God as, as cold or, or disconnected, as somewhat totalitarian, or this, this bad father, a malevolent father who rules with the iron fist, one who forces you to become something you don't want to be. That is not the kind of effect we see in Scripture with God. God, I mean, God will let us run our own plays on earth, even ones that run us into a lot of trouble. And Romans here concretely rebukes this kind of fear-based motivation because he tells us, along with our sins, Jesus crucified our fear and shame. I talked about this last week, this idea of expiation. He deals with not only the, the problem of sin, he deals with the effects of it in our lives. And he calls us to live in a better way, a more noble way, a more excellent way, a way that causes us to change and grow into the image of Jesus that God has for us because of the love that we have for our Father in heaven. Or as the verse here says in Romans, this idea of Abba is sort of like a slang word for daddy. And this is a word, you know, my son is is too big to call me daddy now. I'm dad, but my girls still call me daddy. And there's a deep affection in behind that. The idea here is that we are able to refer to God as our Abba, as our daddy. It's a very intimate relationship here. It's far beyond a, you know, a stern, cold, rigid dad. There is so much love and affection God has for us because of what we've seen in Jesus that it should compel us to love and have affection for him. And that's what's so ironic about a teaching like this or these motivations some of us are not experiencing the promises of peace and hope that the helmet of salvation provide us, that the Bible talks about here in Romans, because we're, we're still dwelling on our past. And I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from our past. I'm not saying we shouldn't take it seriously. But I am saying that we've been freed from the weight of sin, the, pe the penalty of it, to relieve us of that pressure. Jesus does this for us. And others, they, they, they might have believed in the past tense reality of the cross, but they still crucify themselves on a daily basis for their transgressions. Um, if you're a type A, an analytical type, this is probably the world you live in. This is the world I live in, where you know that like Jesus has declared on the cross that he has forgiven you, but you can micromanage everything you did right and wrong in a day. And, and sometimes you create your own whiteboard on your own life and you smote yourself at 1030 at night when you go to bed and you can't sleep because of it. The analytical types are really like this. We forget that God has given us grace and peace and hope, and he's paid the penalty. And I think the hard part, no matter which side of this fence you come from, is that, that the helmet of salvation actually teaches us that we can't put it on ourselves. We have to let Jesus crown it upon our head. Even the weight of picking it up, of earning your own salvation, is too difficult for us to do. It's not possible. So Jesus not only promises to, to put the helmet on our head, but to keep it straight and true as we follow him throughout the course of our lives. And so maybe you're in this room today saying this type of peace and hope, like I hear it, I know it's available to me, but I can't get my heart to feel this, this emotional and spiritual peace that God promises me through it. If this is you, and this is the last thing I'll say this morning, I want to challenge you to think about to do two things this week. Write them down, take a picture, email us, we'll get you the notes and you can, you can process this that way. Think about doing two things this week. The first is to, to make a conscious decision 
to want to see change in the areas of your life God is revealing to you. So what I want to say here is don't imbalance the scale of salvation and sanctification. Be okay with the humble reality that God is constantly reshaping your life and mine into the image of Jesus. And when he highlights an area that is ready for renewal, whatever it is, you have to know that we, we participate in this process. We can not care about that. We can ignore that. We can outright resist that. We have to remember that there is an ownership in our, our faith. We, we have to love and care for and trust the word of the shepherd, of our great Jesus, that when, when he speaks to us. In the same way we, we trust the GPS to get us where we're going, the idea is true here. We should, we should think about why we're being told to turn right in this area of our life. And, and if we have questions about that, we should consult the word and pray and speak to other people. But we should truly try to trust the default judgments of God wherever he leads us. The second is to frequently meditate on the truths of the cross, the helmet of salvation, and the life of Jesus we discussed today. In other words, this can't be a truth you hear about a couple of weeks out of the year. This has to be a truth that is being spoken into your heart all the time. You have to really listen to the voice of the Spirit as He speaks to you. You have to trust the direction of the Father. You have to know that Jesus has given us this incredible power, this incredible ability to to have these truths with us when we leave rooms like this. Your knowledge, growth, and pursuit of Jesus is it is supported by a room like this, but it is not contingent upon this room. When you leave this place, the grace of Jesus and Jesus himself goes with you. And so commit to worship God regularly. Commit to, uh, to worship God through private devotional, studying and praying. Ask God to help you to be the type of person who prays, a person who is humble enough to be spoken into by others and is also you, you care enough to speak into others. This is the process of discipleship. No matter where God leads you, make it a conscious decision to trust Him where He directs you and make the motivation of the cross what you meditate upon as you look in that new direction in life. And that means being honest with God right now or in any moment of your life with wherever you are with Him. So if you're tied up someplace or stressed in some area, Bring that to the Lord. He already knows that. And bring that to somebody else in this church that you know cares about you. This is the thing I love most about our church. It's, it is without question the most caring community of Christians I've ever been a part of. I have been both on the giving end of that and the receiving end of that. And it is amazing to see the kind of love and care and affection that goes on in this body. Take advantage of that if you've not done so yet. Ask him to show you somebody in this room that can be a brother or sister to you that can help you grow in Jesus. And then do your best to try to, with a childlike faith, with, with the sort of assumed trust we have with that GPS, to let the amazing grace of the cross show us that God does absolutely love us as we are. He offers us that helmet at a time when we're not even worthy to, to, to wear it. But he also promises us that part of the, the, the grace that he shows us, part of the way that he continues to show us grace, is by not leaving us that way. He cares enough about us to work in our lives to help us become more like Jesus every day of our lives to find the hope and peace all of humanity longs for. So let that be your hope this day and every day that follows. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And we just pray now as we prepare to leave this place that you would truly direct our steps and help us, Father, to to rest in the right motivation this morning, that you are a God of grace, you are a good God, and you are a God who calls us to think about who we are and where we are regularly. You ask us to think about 
who we are in light of your son, Christ. And so I pray this morning for the remaining moments, as brief as they are that we have together, we would truly let you conduct a diagnostic on our hearts. Show us where we are with your son. Show us where we need to grow with your son. And in all of these ways, God, bathe us in your grace, comfort us, God, and show us the next step in our life, whatever it is. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.